Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by Elect 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and the 97.5 Network, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, one of your favorite topics came up again this week, and I'm not going to let the show start without getting you all fired up. So here's here before you even tell me what the topic is, I'm assuming that when you say one of my favorite topics, it means that that you're about to try to light a fire under my rear end. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Fine. Just wanted just wanted to be clear. Baseball. Tell me how excited you are to have Tony Larusa as the official enforcer for the unwritten rules of baseball, and what happened this week. I'm never excited to have Tony Larusa be the voice of anything. Tony Larusa is a dinosaur. He always was a dinosaur, and I wish he would just go back to the Stone Ages and get out of baseball at this point. But he thinks he's still inventing baseball. So feel better. I understand it. I do. What? What? Okay, yeah. so the Twins were down 15 to 4 or 14 to 4. Yeah, because they stink. Uh, the White Sox. Right, they decided they to bring a position player into pitch. A former Philly farmhand. Yeah. <laughs> of course, you find the mm-hmm. Philly angle, who yeah. is down 3-0 in the, account, in the count and serves up a meatball 47-mile-an-hour <laughs> pitch down the middle of the plate that Yasmin that was a grapefruit. <laughs> de- deposits <laughs> over the center field wall. Right. Tony LaRusso loses his mind. Because his own player. he did not take the pitch. It was mm-hmm. it violated the unwritten rules of baseball to do it. Not only did they unri- was that not okay, but then the next day the twins threw at him behind his back, mm-hmm. and Larusa said that was okay. So before we go to our guest and get into our Olympic talk, tell me about this ridiculousness that, that is. You can throw behind a player's back in baseball, but you can't throw a pitch down the plate and hit it. Can we first talk about how he's a manager who doesn't have his own players' backs? So, so, so that's the, <laughs> Thanks, that's the first thing. <laughs> Thanks, coach. It's okay yeah. to throw at me. Cool. Yeah, exactly. The thing he has a problem with is that his own player hit a home run. The thing that he doesn't have a problem with is when a 90 mile per hour projectile comes at his player to hit it. So, so go figure that. So here's the deal. The twins stink. The twins decided that they were going to surrender in the middle of a game by not putting in a player who plays the position. And so the fans are supposed to sit there and just watch the rest of the game with nobody doing anything except getting to the end of the game because you have to play a certain amount of innings. That's your money's worth, right, Jeff? Why should the White Sox fans, or the Twins fans for that matter, not want to have see another home run? And if the Twins say, we quit, but we have to stay on the field, then the White Sox don't have to quit. The White Sox can continue to try. Not and that's what they did. That's a violation. Yeah. So, so if Major League Baseball wants to have a mercy rule, and you'll learn more about the mercy rule as your kid gets a little bit older, and you'll be praying for the moment that the mercy rule comes, <laughs> then fine. But until that day, they have to play nine innings. And if they're going to play nine innings, then you should encourage all your players to play as hard as they can for nine innings. That, that's what a uh, hard part is. I'm having a hard enough time explaining to my four-year-old the written rules of baseball. He doesn't get why the pitcher stands on a hill or why it's okay to steal. And now I got to go through the unwritten rules of baseball with him. Come on, Jeff. We constantly have to go through these unwritten rules. <sighs> and, and, and if, you know, I used to think Trevor Bauer was just a loud mouth. He's the voice of reason. Exactly. So when Trevor Bauer gets, serves up a home run, and the other guy flips his bat, Trevor Brower says, hey, Good for he you. beat me. 
if he wants to celebrate, as long as nobody's going out there and pointing fingers at the other person and not showing them up, why can't people celebrate? Why can't people try hard enough? And I'll extend it to, to football. So in college football, they can con- people constantly complain that if the score is 35 to 7 in the last quarter, they got a problem when the third stringers then try. They're supposed to come in the game for the first time and they're not allowed to try. Lay down. Here's, a, here's an idea. Be good enough on the other side to actually try hard yourself and stop them. And if you can't stop them, oh, well, then you lose. Well, let's uh, leave that there. Let's go on to somebody who is absolutely good enough. Great to have back 2012, 2016 Paralympian, 2020 hopeful Matt Stutzman. Matt, thanks so much for the time and joining us again. Great to have you back. Uh, I'm happy to be back and thanks for having me. Uh, It's wonderful to talk to you. Uh, We're excited to watch your chase Tell me what's going on. Things have been pushed back a little bit from your trials. How's everything going for your attempt to qualify again this year? It's like uh, you, you get to a peak and then there's something that comes up that's like, oh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, everything that went on last year and then, you know, got pushed to this year. And then even at trials, we had an issue where it had to be postponed again um, to the 20. Basically, we have to be in California the 29th. And so once again, I'm re reset mentally and i'm trying to get prepared for the trials coming up in about a week or so so matt we're used to talking to a lot of athletes that play in team sports and how teams were impacted by the pandemic tell us from from somebody who's playing a more individual sport how you were impacted by the pandemic as far as your preparation and 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 whether it matters that you aren't able to participate in competitions leading up to this big competition. Yeah, so um, as in sports where you have a, a team sport and stuff like that, the you know we're individuals shooting, it still impacts us about the same um, because of the, the guidelines and the rules that they put in place. They're trying to make it fair across the board for all sports. So whatever sports like let's say swimming or soccer, whatever kind of rules they get put in place, we still have to follow. So um, it's actually been pretty difficult um, mentally staying on top of everything um, just because you're trying to peak at certain times. And, um, you know, you just got to, you got to stay, you know, focused on what the ultimate goal is really. And hopefully, you know, we roll into trials and everything works out like it's supposed to. How do you think your previous Olympic experience has helped you kind of weather this crazy process of start and stop. I feel pretty blessed that I was able to have two other games under my belt. Um, I kind of know what to expect. I kind of know what it's going to be like there. A couple years ago before everything started, I went over to Tokyo and I got to spend some time on the field of play. So I feel like I have a little bit of an advantage over a lot of people just because I've been there, smelled the wind and, and know the scenery and, you know, I think that's what I keep looking forward to, and that's what keeps me pushing through is is being able to go there and, and still compete for USA. You know, you talk about the advantage you have in the mental preparation. I saw you talk about nerves. Uh, I think it was a CBS interview. You said you don't think you get as nervous as some of your competitors because you're used to having people staring and looking at you. Can you talk about how you think that that's actually an advantage you have over others? I was fascinated by that. Yeah, so this is something I've... Um, you know, learned over, I guess, the course of shooting is that when I get into a scenario where there's a lot of people around and there's, you know, it's just like more of a high pressure situation, I find myself excelling just because 
like I'm embracing the moment and I'm there. I, it doesn't affect me. So, for example, you know, I was born without any arms. And so my whole life I've had people looking at me and, and watching and pointing and either, you know, staring or whatever it was. And I was able to block them out, you know, my whole entire life. So I was, you know, 30, 38 years of practice where let's say I'm facing you and it's the gold medal match and we're getting ready to shoot in front of 10,000 people that's new to you to all of a sudden have 10,000 people watching you all of a sudden, you know, like there's that added stuff of like, wow, people are, are watching me right now in this moment, shoot. And you haven't, I mean, that's hard to prepare for. That's hard to train for, you know, even at home. And so I feel like that's where I get my, my advantage from because I've, I'm used to it. I've had, you know, 38 years of practice. So we don't know whether or not there's going to be spectators or to the extent of what number of spectators uh, there will be at this Olympics. Uh, it, if there aren't spectators, do you feel that it creates or takes away that advantage from you? Or is it something that you'll just block out and move on? No, I, I feel like it kind of, in my opinion, maybe levels the playing field just a little bit, just because, you know, there's a lot of amazing archers out there and they're all, you know, trying to compete for gold, but when they practice, they practice at home. Uh, there's usually, or at, at a training center, but there's usually maybe like only five or 10 people around. So if there's no spectators to them, it's going to be very familiar. Like it is at home. And I feel like it'll give them, you know, give them a little bit more confidence and, and help them perform better than probably they would if there was a lot of people in the audience. Matt, as a kid, I, I still remember, like pretending to go to opening ceremonies and wearing the U.S. Uh, opening ceremonies clothing and stuff like that. Does it ever get tiring to do that? Do you get excited about it? And, and what is it like to be out there during that opening ceremony, knowing that you are going to represent this huge country in front of the world? To be honest, it like even now as you're talking about it, like the back of my hairs on my neck are like, it's standing up. Like I get this excitement, chill running down my spine, like you know, forever and ever, just like you, I've always, you know, I've always wanted to do something amazing. I just, I just never knew what it was. And for me, my, you know, my Olympic dream didn't come around until, you know, 2010 when I realized, you know, Hey, this is something I can do. And, you know, that's what I've been striving for. So to make it there and be able to do that stuff, it's, it's like a feeling of having all the moments in the world, just, it's like finding your Michael Jordan moment for me. Like, it's like, wow, I've, I'm here. I've, I've done it. This is what I've been working towards. You know, I, every time we, we have you on, we, we try to make sure we prep like with all of our guests. And, and since we last talked to you, <clears throat> you did another documentary. You've done a bunch of documentaries in the fa- past, but you participated in rising Phoenix on Netflix. And I saw you say this one was a little different because you were really able to be yourself. And we saw the fun side of you shooting baskets and and your love of cars. Can you talk about how participating in rising Phoenix was different than some of the other things that you've done? Usually when someone approaches me for a documentary, you know, documentary they're they just want to tell my story. But when rising Phoenix, you know, approached me about being a part of that, it wasn't just telling my story, but and showing who I was, but it also was in my mind, you know, we were all on the same page of what the whole goal of Rising Phoenix was. And that was to inspire the world, show show people that, you know, if they have a disability or not, that there still is amazing things that can be done. 
um, you know, bringing, bringing awareness to people with physical disabilities and what they're capable of. And so the mission on this one for me was a lot different than, I guess, a normal documentary. I saw you say that other stories, including uh, track athlete John Baptiste, actually motivated you. Can you talk more about that a little bit? Yeah, so um, <laughs> listening to what he had to go through to make it where he's at, I, I can't even imagine. Like, you know, I yes, I have no arms, and I was born this way, and 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 some people might look at me and think, you know, he's had a really rough life. But when you look at, like, John, like, Yes, he's missing one leg, you know, he's missing a leg, but what he had to go through to get to where he's at now, I feel was a greater struggle, a greater hurdle that he had to overcome and look at his attitude and look at who he is as a person. And it just makes me want to be better because if he can go through all that and I didn't have it as bad as him, then I can push myself even, you know, even harder. We, we've seen you go through this this experience, as Jason said, uh, we watch you on TV, we see you compete, we've, we've heard your story. Uh, what is it like for you to, to have people come up to you and tell you that you inspire them and that, that you make them want to be better? When I, to be honest, when I first started, um, you know, I was just, I was just trying to figure out how to, you know, feed my family. And that was my goal was to be the best so I could put food on the table. And then over the years, as things progressed the way they are, I started to notice that there was people that were, you know, reaching out. And it actually gave me a new perspective on not just feeding my family, but there's a whole bigger picture here than me just shooting bows. Um, if I can help out. So like, if you look at a guy like um, Michael Phelps, you know, and why is he the greatest, you know, swimmer ever? And that's because he changed the, not only the world and how they view swimming, but also he made the sport better. And that's what makes him the greatest in the world, not necessarily the millions of medals he's won. And so for me, that's what opened my eyes to what I wanted to do is, is to be the greatest archer in the world. You also have to change the way archery is and make the sport better. There is a chance that uh, there, are, there are currently now two other people with no arms that are trying for their spots this year. So this year could be the first year in history of having three fully armless people at the games. I mean, that's insane. That's amazing, considering in 2010, I was the only person in the world to even try it. Did either, did either of those people ever approach you and talk to you about it? Yeah, um, we've I've been working with them for about three, two, yeah, three years now. I guess two thousand. What is this? Yeah, three years now. Um, they reached out. I helped them, you know, figure out setups and helped them figure out what they were going to do. And then they actually showed up to a competition in the Czech Republic where I was at in two thousand nineteen, right before everything hit. And that was their first international tournament. Um, and even since then, with you know everything going on and stuff like that, and no tournaments going on, we've still been working pretty much once a month. I and mean, we'll do meetings back and forth and and refine what they've got going on. And and to be honest, <laughs> there's the one guy is getting really good. Um, I <laughs> I I just got to still make sure that I'm still the best armless archer. But um, he's starting to get really good, so that's that's even better. Well, so that was going to be my next question. If you work with them, did you tell them like you know? to misjudge the wind just a little bit to the left, just so you still have an advantage. <laughs> and to be honest, I don't, I'm not, not even joking. I told him, look guys, once you start getting better than me, 
I'm done. I'm not going to help you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's just the competitive side of me, you know. But in reality, you know, I want everyone to succeed, you know, and, and I want them to do good. And even if we were, uh, you know, like, for example, we were in trials uh, before it got postponed a week ago. We were in lockdown and quarantining and we getting ready to shoot our first leg of trials. And I was still messaging people on our team that had bow issues and was still helping them, even though like they're my competitors, you know? So at the end of the day, I still want everybody to shoot good and and do their best. I just wanted to ask you a bigger picture question. I I see you talk about your love of cars. And when, when you do, you say the car doesn't stereotype the driver. It just wants to be driven. You talk about your love of archery. A bow just wants to be shot. How important is you, is it for you, for people to get rid of their preconceived ideas of what can be done to just let things happen because of your own success and the way you've done it? That's a good question. I feel it's, for me, I feel it's really important because there's so many people, like even for example, like my own kids sometimes are like, I can't do that. I'm like, why can't you do that? I can do it just fine. Why can't you do it? And I feel like it's important that people kind of get over that, I guess, perceived notion that they can't or, Maybe it's something in them that they won't. And and for me, I guess it's just it's just to try. Like, just go out and try it. Like, what's the worst that's going to happen? You know, you might love it. You might not love it. But try. And I feel like if everybody just put that kind of effort into life, this whole world would be a much better place. That's a great place to leave it, Matt Stutzman. We always appreciate the time. We wish you the best of luck in the trials and can't wait to follow what happens. Awesome, guys. I appreciate you having me on. And uh, hopefully your whole entire year is amazing. We're going to be rooting for you. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Jeff, just amazing. Just, and that's why, that's why I wanted to ask the question. Um, And he talks about that. He's a person who has never let somebody's perception of him define who he is. You can't do this. To to me, the, the amazing part about Matt and just athletes in general and competitors is, is this whole idea. So he's got, he's got guys now that are breathing down his neck (laughs) and, 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 you know, most people would say, well, you can't, you got to stop. You got to stop giving them hints. You got to stop. But that's not what competitors do. Competitors say, okay, I'm going to help them get better. And then I'm going to better get better. And I want to beat them. And, And Matt's no different than that. Because that competitive nature, when they get better, it pushes you to get better. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's what it is. But look, I mean, it says a lot about him. And as he talks about sort of redefining the sport that he's bringing people along who didn't participate in the sport before, and now they may overtake him, which is people, an amazing thing. People like, you know, from my college days, Jim, Jim Abbott was, uh, was a pitcher at Michigan when I was there and inspired people. If people don't know who he is, he was a one-handed pitcher. And, and when you see Matt, I mean, he inspired me. We saw him on a, on a TV show. And, and went, oh, oh, wow. The funny thing is, I didn't even introduce him as the armless archer or say that he didn't have arms this time. It was mm-hmm. like a couple questions into the interview. All I said was he was a Paralympian. I, I just, I'm so used to talking to him as an athlete that I don't talk about his disability until we got into the differences with the other athletes part of it. So it just, it shows how even the conversation we have changes when, when you have those conversations. And if, if people, if you haven't seen it, do, do Google the armless archer and look, and you will be inspired. There is no question. All right. You'll also be inspired watching the Philadelphia union. It's a little bit of a different story, but we're going to get to some soccer talk with our favorite coach. We have to bring on 
Coach Jim Curtin, uh, fashion icon now with his yellow sweatshirt that I own since you don't have the suits. How are you doing today, Coach? Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. How are you? Oh, we're fantastic. We get to watch you guys play soccer. Life is good. Uh, Wait, I, I have a question. What is this about fashion icon? So it, it, I don't know if you saw, Coach doesn't wear the suit as much anymore. Right. And he, I, although it's a great look for him, I wouldn't go out and buy <laughs> the suit. So when he throws on the yellow hoodie with the great new colors, I, that was something that I could buy. So I made sure to go on the website and buy it before they sold out. So I was, <laughs> you know, let you know that he's influencing my wardrobe. So, so Jim, do you, do you get was, a cut uh, of that? that? It was not Bill Belichick. It was not Bill Belichick inspired. I'll just say that with the hoodie. So, uh, yeah, it was just uh, – <laughs> I used to wear the suit every day, uh, you know, to games, and it, it, it really started when I when I was the interim coach and I wore a suit the first game. You kind of have a moment where you got to decide, you know, am I going to go formal here? Or am I going to go laid back? Um, as the interim coach, gosh, seven, eight years ago, I, I went with the suit, and we won the first game, so I never wanted to change and have the players think, oh, he's not taking this game as serious because he's not wearing the suit. So uh, I guess with a little twist of faith with uh, COVID coming and the games not being in stadiums with, with fans, uh, it became a, I became a little more relaxed, I guess, in the way I dressed. And uh, to be honest, between me and you guys, uh, I found it a lot more comfortable and wanted to pick out a tie combination with the jacket and uh, we're spending lots of money on suits and dry cleaning and all that stuff. So uh, this suits me better. And, uh, you know, also I get to spend money on things that I actually like and want, like sneakers rather than, <laughs> that's the quick version <laughs> so, so so now that you know so i wanted to get the gray sweatshirt that you were wearing before but they didn't have that in the store now you know <laughs> that jason's actually buying the clothes do you get a cut of this or are you now going to go back to the union and tell them that you want a cut of what you're selling <laughs> no any, anything to help sell the merchandise is, is fine by me um yeah it's pretty funny the the, the gold one it, I, I didn't think much of it when I wore it in Atlanta, but they told me it did sell out quickly, and then I wore the light blue on the next game, and that was gone. So it, it's uh, I guess it's helping something, <laughs> uh, and people are enjoying them. They're actually quite comfortable, too. They're really soft material, so um, I guess that's another endorsement for them. <laughs> They're nice. It's a great sweatshirt. I ordered it during the game. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd have missed my chance. <laughs> So, so so now you're getting to to show off your new fashion style in in front of a bunch of fans. What is it like for you, and how excited are you that you get to have all of these fans back in the stadium and get that home field advantage again? Look, we all love we all love sports. Whatever your favorite sport is, and, and, and no sport's the same without the fans in the stadium. It's just the reality of things. I think we've made the most of of it during this this tough time, and, and sports have brought people together in so many different ways, but. Gosh, to have uh, even you know we've only had you know five to six thousand fans in our stadium, but it feels feels nice and loud and it feels full. So you're seeing more and more now. Uh, the stadiums start to look uh, and, and open back up fully, uh, which obviously makes it more difficult on the road. But it also um, it, it makes it that much more enjoyable when you do win and you make you know fifty thousand people in Atlanta go quiet. That's uh, that's kind of what we all love to to do uh, with our job. And, and yeah, the fans are the lifeblood of our sport. Uh, we have great fans in Philadelphia, but throughout the league, soccer fans are very passionate. and uh, It's great to have them back in the stadiums and hear the noise and get heckled and all those little things that uh, you know make the game that we all love so special. You've had a pretty crazy start to the season, seven games in yeah. just the past four weeks, MLS games, CCL games. How tough has that schedule been, and, and how big is this week off for your players as you prepare for D.C. United this weekend? Yeah, the the week off was is much needed, um, and the guys got some rest, which was important. Um, 
you know, but, you know, with the, the pandemic and, and the one positive maybe that's come out of it is the charter flights that we've been getting, uh, it gets us around the country and in and out on the same day uh, and allows us to recover. But, you know, we've, we've logged a lot of miles. Uh, obviously, going to Costa Rica was difficult, down to Atlanta for Champions League. Uh, you know, Columbus, difficult game. We've had some of the top teams in the Eastern Conference have come through. and uh, We've played them already. So, um, to be where we are in the standings is a, is a positive thing right now, and to be the only MLS team left in Champions League is, uh, you know, a little bit added pressure for us to, to represent the league well, but it's something that we're really looking forward to down the road here in August. Um, so happy with the start to the year, as chaotic as it's been. I think we've learned a lot about our team uh, through some difficult adversity early on with, you know, missing Jose Martinez and little injuries here and there. Others have stepped up in a big way, and uh, I think we'll only be stronger at the end of the year for it. What's it like to be a coach to to be juggling MLS season versus CCL season? It's complicated, you know. And again, you know, the, the common fan sometimes is confused that we're playing in, in, in two competitions at the same time, and it, it, it's, it's normal that they are confused because it maybe isn't quite on the level yet of, of Champions League in Europe uh, or the, F, the famous FA Cup in Europe, and when they're juggling multiple competitions, so. Um, we prioritize Champions League. Uh, again, we're always going to try to win our league games, but I'll just say nobody nobody remembers Game Three of the regular season as much as they do uh, the opportunity to play in, in Mexico and at Azteca Stadium against Club America. Uh, so we prioritize the Champions League. Uh, we know no MLS team has, has won this competition. Uh, we're into the semifinals, and as crazy as it sounds, uh, I think our fans and our players, I want them to dream about the opportunity, if, for those that don't know, if we do advance in this competition, uh, we'll play the, the winner of the Champions League. So you could see uh, Manchester City uh, coming to to Subaru Park and playing us in a game, which would be uh, incredible. You know, you could have a team like uh, from South America, like Boca Juniors, or a team from Asia that, that we play against. So uh, you could move on if you win the CONCACAF um, Champions League uh, to play in what's called the Club World Cup, and it's you know, six six of the best teams in, in the world, the champions from every every continent. So uh, that's our goal, uh, as crazy as it sounds. Um, uh, I do want to test ourselves against <laughs> Man City and, 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 and just the difficulties that that would bring uh, and, and just the recognition it would bring for the club also to be really special. Look, it sounds less crazy after the way that you guys have played in this tournament so far. You're the last MLS team standing with three Liga teams. How big is this yeah. experience going to be? I mean, you've got so much youth and change on this roster. Here they are. They're going to go into Stadio Azteca against Club America in August before they'll then come here in September. How's that going to be for just the growth of your team, the experience that they get to have playing this level of soccer? It's a, it's an incredible experience. It's, it's, it's invaluable because uh, when you go to, uh, you know, obviously Costa Rica was a tough experience for the guys. Uh, we had so many 16, 17, 18-year-old kids that got to do that for the first time. Uh, Azteca will be a whole uh, level up, though. <laughs> uh, for those that don't know, it's uh, their stadiums at uh, 7,000 feet altitude uh, above sea level, so you, uh, well over a mile, you you can't breathe <laughs> when you go there. Uh, it's usually 80 to 90 degrees. Um, you know, uh, the air quality there, I'll just say, is, is very difficult as well. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a real challenge. Um, I've played there and I've played in games there. And I'll just say that the, the night before in your hotel room, you can expect the fire alarm to be pulled three or four times during the night and the hotel has to be evacuated. So uh, there's a lot of games and shit that goes on down there uh, because they have such great, passionate fans. Um, we'll have our, 
our hands full for sure, but we go to go to Mexico first in the first leg and, and have to obviously keep the game tight, um, try and steal an away goal. And then uh, I like our chances in, in Subaru Park where we're a, a really tough opponent, tough team to play against. So we respect Club America, incredible club. You know, they're kind of the, the New York Yankees or the Dallas Cowboys or whatever traditional team you want to say that, that kind of has the, the love of the entire country or the or the disdain of the entire country. <laughs> um, but they're, they're certainly the most popular team uh, in Mexico and, and one of the biggest spending clubs as well. You talked about the 17 and 18-year-olds that you have on your team. How do you balance yeah. the competition that you have with, with the role that you also have of developing these young guys and replacing the other young guys that just left? Yeah, at the end of the day, look, these are high school kids. They're, they're literally still still finishing up their high school. And I think back to what I was doing high school, and it's pretty incredible how mature these kids are. Um, so uh, I'm just, uh, as a coach, you know, all I really am is another teacher for them. Uh, I just want to see them uh, in an environment that, that pushes them uh, at the right time, is hard on them, uh, and at certain times puts my armor on them. Um, because they're so young, they're so talented, their futures are so bright. Um, but along this, this development and this pathway, there's going to be good days and good weeks, and there's going to be tough weeks as well uh, where they're learning and they're, they're, they're growing and they're trying to improve. So uh, it's, it's no one, no one uh, player's development is, is exactly the same as, as the next, um, and it, it's not always uh, linear. There's going to be some dips. There's going to be some, some amazing moments as well. Uh, and they have to navigate all that uh, and, and juggle uh, things like doing interviews and, and a little bit of fame that comes on and playing on ESPN or, or, or Fox or whatever it might be. Um, so, again, their growth uh, is, is going to be unique, and I'm just here to kind of help and, and try to guide them along the way. You know, I just wonder, do you have to coach differently a young team versus a veteran team? And, and how do you balance – this team, as you now wait for your next midfielder, Daniel Gazdike, to come later yeah. this summer and to integrate him into what you're putting together now, it just seems like an interesting challenge for a coach. Yeah, anytime you bring in a, a superstar player like a Daniel Gazdike, um, I always will tell him on day one, I'll say, it's not your job to come in here and impress us or, or try to do too much. It's, it's our job as a staff, it's our job as players to to bring out your best skill set. So we don't want to put pressure on them. You know, the pressure's on the coaching staff and on the players to, to bring the best out of the, the player that we selected and, and think highly enough to have uh, join our group. Um, for the young players now, uh, you know, the, the, the balance of uh, you know, keeping them, them going and keeping them positive each day in training uh, is, is not an easy thing. And, and what, the biggest thing I could tell any young coach or any uh you know new club that's getting started and wants to do it through youth you better have the buy-in of the veterans because every team's still going to have veterans and if you don't have the buy-in and the leadership of an Alejandro Bedoya it's not going to work you know if you don't have guys that are experienced in season pros that are going to understand this is our way of doing things um good better and different they're going to embrace it um you know you, you need that buy-in from them uh, for to have the success of a Brendan Aronson or a Mark McKenzie who gets sold to Europe for several millions of dollars. So it starts with having um, good leadership at the top and you need veterans that are, you know, almost my, my voice in, 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 in the locker room when I'm not there, you know, and, and they kind of keep these young guys going and they're really bought into what the Philadelphia Union wants to be. It's not for every club, uh, but it really has been a good fit for us and it's been a, a unique one. It's been really fun to work in this environment. As a coach, how, do, how much does it help having a goalie 
at playing at the level that Andre <laughs> Blake is, is playing. Also helps uh, quite a bit. I, I say it all the time. The, the goalkeeper position in our sport is so underappreciated and undervalued. You know, I can't even think of the last time. It's probably never happened. Maybe Tim Howard was the last time. But where a club actively went out and said, you know what, we're going to pay a couple million bucks to bring in a goalkeeper. Everybody spends on attackers. Everybody spends on, um, you know, the, the flashy guys uh, that maybe sell jerseys. Uh, but goalkeepers in this league, and Andre is the example of it, are worth, you know, 12 to 18 points a season. And when you look at 12 or 18 points in our, our, our table, you know, that's the difference between out of the playoffs or, or winning the supporter shield last year, you know. So it's incredibly valuable. Uh, selfishly, Andre lets me sleep easy at night because I don't have to worry uh, too much about uh, the defensive side of the ball because uh, even if we make mistakes, he's going to be there to bail us out with big saves that win us games. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're very fortunate here in Philadelphia to have Andre Blake, who is uh, a legend of the club, and I hope he stays here long-term for the rest of his career. All right. I, I got to ask this one question. Um, you had a press conference after one of the Atlanta games. Uh, we can't repeat what oh, you boy. said. Who, who, who was who was the first relative you heard from? <laughs> uh, in you know in a funny way. So again, I I never condone uh, foul language, or, and I and I'm supposed I am a, I consider myself a role model for others, and it takes a lot to get me upset. And uh, you know that I, I got a little too upset that night, but at, at the same time, you know it was uh, you know heat of the moment. Um, you know and. It, both legs versus Atlanta were very hard fought. They're a great team. I respect their coach a ton. I, I thought so highly of him as a player and still do. Uh, and I know he's a tremendous coach. But, you know, there was a disagreement on, on you know, shaking hands or not shaking hands after the match. And I, I, I tend to believe that we both do everything we can for 90 minutes. But after the game, when the final whistle blows, you still say, good game. Um, you know, we had a discussion. It got a little heated. And, you know, I said what I said. And, the word I used is a bad word. It wasn't meant to say he is that. It was he acted that way. <laughs> you know, so there, there's a different thing. And I, we don't know each other well, so it, it was unfair maybe for me to say it. But, um, yeah, I got a little too excited, and uh, I, I won't use that one again. But I, I will say, though, I did get a lot of support <laughs> uh, from, you know, other coaches in the league, other general managers in the league that said, you know, at, at a certain point you do have to stand up for yourself and what you believe in and, and back your players at the end of the day, too, because he wasn't. He wasn't happy with how our players were maybe uh, time wasting towards the end of the game. Well, look, you're you're a Philly Philly guy. You know that was a Chase Utley moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I texted Jeff. I texted Jeff right away when I saw it. I was like, "Ooh, coach is fired up." We haven't heard him say that on the radio show. So. <laughs> yeah. Coach, yeah, we always appreciate the time that you give us. Wish you continued success, and can't wait to see you out there at the park one day soon. Thanks so much for having me, guys. And, yeah, everybody get out to Subaru Park uh, this summer. It's going to be uh, a hot ticket for sure. And I uh, yeah, can't wait to, to have everybody out there this summer and watch some great soccer. Uh, we look forward to it. Jeff and I will be there. Take it easy, Coach. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Jeff, I wasn't sure whether we were going to go there or not to ask him about it. I was glad that you did. <laughs> He's, you know, he tr- has he gotten to the point that he is the most popular coach in Philadelphia? For people who know about him, yes. Yeah, I think I, he, I always a friend of mine always jokes that um, <clears throat> I always joke that people like my wife better than me. And my friend says only the people who have met her. So it's like, you know, anybody who knows about him as a coach, he has to be mm-hmm. one of your top coaches in the city for sure. I mean, he is a Philly guy. He reflects Philly. 
he I mean, we didn't even ask him. We could have asked him about what's going on with the other Philly teams. He'd have engaged in that. We've talked Phillies and Sixers and Flyers and Eagles with him just as much. We have union well, at times. Well, you know, I wonder if they're starting to get worried because because it seems like somebody could get injured ringing that bell and they seem to be there a lot. I mean, I was, I was at the Sixers game last week and Ali Bedoya was ringing the bell again. So I don't know what the deal is, but they, they seem to like that bell. A lot of union guys ringing the bell. Any other thoughts? But, but here's, here's before the, we get the break. Well, no, but because he, here's the thing with regard to that bell ringing thing, as much as it, it may not seem like a lot, they try to get people that the city gets excited about. So what does it tell you about the union that, that the union players keep coming there to do it? It tells me that that soccer has kind of taken taken the city by storm. I mean, and it doesn't hurt that they won the Supporters Shield last year and that they're doing as well internationally as they're doing. Look, in just the few years that we've been doing this radio show and, and covering the team, there's been a marked difference. And Coach always will thank us for covering the team. And it's like, at this point, it's like, you can get enough coverage, Coach. We appreciate it, but, but you're going to get covered now. <laughs> and, and by the way, I'm not letting you go to a break now. I don't know what sweatshirt you're talking about. Oh, la- yeah. Last week, we had this whole thing about how, you know, how allergic you were that, that you didn't get me a birthday gift. Well, well there it was. You could have gotten me the sweatshirt. So can I be honest? Yeah. I didn't think they about don't it. They don't have my size. <laughs> no, I even worse. I didn't even think about you to check. Of course <laughs> I was, you didn't. I was of so course excited. you didn't. I was look, let's be honest. My whole wardrobe consists of zip up hooded sweatshirts and regular hooded Which sweatshirts. So, so when I saw the coach with a hooded sweatshirt that I could get, like I said, I'm not going out and buying a suit. But okay, here, well, 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 guess what? You know, this this weekend I'm flying down to the PGA championship. I'm jealous. Don't you dare ask for anything. <laughs> so there. And they have the, the, golf, the golf tournaments have great merch. So what you're saying is I've missed my opportunity. Yes, you have. Let's go to the break. When we you come back, we've got Sarah Parsons Walter to talk about her new book. Stick with us. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. All right, Jeff, I know I'm not going to get a gift back from the PGA Championship this weekend, <laughs> but how excited are you to go and watch some golf there? Tell me a little bit about that. I've been to a lot of majors and and it's just the, the level, like people go, oh, you're going to watch golf. What could be worse than playing golf, watching golf? It's not. If you've ever, all you have to do is play one round of golf and then go see professional golf players play a round of golf at like a major and you realize how good they are and how hard they work to get to that point. And just the level, the fans get really excited, especially like a PGA. You know, it's not stuffy. People get excited. I mean, to me, the Ryder Cup and and President's Cup are even more exciting. But this is just a lot of fun, and this is going to be the longest course ever for a PGA. And the PGA is already known for not having super low scores. So this is going to be interesting. It's going to be windy. It's going to be a long course. But I'm hoping for the first time in, Lord knows how long that I'm going to a major and it doesn't rain. So you're going to go and see athletes uh, basically come and, and play golf. I, on the other hand, will not. I will be here watching the games. Uh, wh- what do you expect to see from the athletes out there, Jeff? 
in terms of where you think golf is right now? We've seen a lot, you know, Tiger's not out there. You've had some other players with injuries. What are the names you're looking forward to out there? Well, everybody keeps saying Rory McIlroy, but the reason it's, it's kind of like the lazy answer to give because he won a tournament for the first time in a while. And he played well the last time the PGA was at the ocean course in Key Island, which is where it is this year. I, I, I don't know how you can predict a golfer. It, it's one four day tournament and you just don't know who's going to be on that week. So I don't, I, I can't do the prediction, but I, I can't, I can't bet on golf. No, you can't handle that. No, but there, but there's so many good young players. Like John Rahm is the pick. Every every tournament, everybody goes. This is going to be the one John Rahm wins. But it doesn't happen. So, <laughs> well, so here here's my prediction. This is the one John Rahm wins. All right. Well, let's get my to turn. Some, let's get to some <laughs> soccer talk. We'll leave the golf there. Um, we thought we were going to join by Sarah Parsons Walter. We're actually going to be joined by her co-author Stephen G. Mandis. New book out this week. What happened to the USMNT? The Ugly Truth About the Beautiful Game. Stephen, thanks for hopping on for a few minutes and joining us. Thank you. And, St- and Stephen, look, we, we got to ask, it doesn't sound like Sarah had much of a good explanation for not being on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she just gave birth to a, a baby girl. so We'll accept that. Are we, we breaking news? Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely accept that. <laughs> we uh, could be. <laughs> maybe we shouldn't tell that because maybe she hasn't had time to tell her family we'll <laughs> yeah, be finding out about it listening to radio interviews Stephen, th- congratulations so much on the book coming out uh we encourage people to go out and get it at the end of the show we'll let you tell people where they can get it why don't you talk to us a little bit about the genesis of where the book came from with you working with sarah on it sure um i had written a book um called uh, the real madrid way which was my introduction to soccer. Um, And then from that, I then wrote a book with Sarah called uh, What Happened to Syria, the Italian League, like why was it good in the 80s and 90s, and then it started declining in the 2000s, and why was that, and why we thought there'd be a revival. Um, And then people started to contact us and say, why are you writing about Italian soccer? Why don't you write about the U.S. men's soccer team? Like what happened? And we thought it was a good question. Um, So we started off on the project because everyone had very definitive views um, that had never really been challenged in a, in a rigorous academic way. So right before you came on, we had Jim Curtin on the head coach of uh, the Philadelphia union. We were talking to him about CONCACAF and how well they're doing and the possibility of, of being the first MLS team to win that. Why is it, if, if MLS is starting to pick up, uh, why is it that the U S team has so much difficulty competing internationally uh, yeah so it's, it's interesting it's not really a it has not been a talent issue so many of the the reasons people told us we didn't qualify were trying to address some sort of talent or development basis the, the u.s had enough talent to to qualify the thing is is actually there's a lot of unique things about a world cup that people don't really understand. The, the first is, is the World Cup is actually not a competition of nations. It's a competition of zip codes, first and foremost. So many people don't realize this, but many of the countries, the players come from very small places within their country. So um, take France, which just won the World Cup. The majority of the players came from poor immigrant suburbs in Paris and Lyon who played street, to, street soccer together 
um, growing up, and then eventually they were identified and then brought to a national academy called Clairefontaine. Or in Germany, the majority of the players come from just two states in Germany. Um, and actually, if you look at the starting 11 players in Germany, um, seven of the 11 came from two development academies, Borussia Dortmund, I'm sorry, uh, Bayern Munich and uh, Schalke. And the majority of their team comes from four development academies. So there's this identity, there's this familiarity that is going on um, because many of them come from the same development academies. So when we talk about the German team, we're talking about Bayern Munich and a few academies. Or Italy, we're talking about Juventus and a few academies. In Spain, we're talking about Barcelona and a few academies. And so the United States has lost that familiarity. It's it one of the like, key things that we learned. Sorry, it seems like in the book, you, you do a lot of looking at the identity of the U.S. team and the style of play. You know, I saw in the review if the Italians have Cantanazio and the Spanish have Tika Tika and Dutch have total football. We need to cultivate the American way and embrace it. Can you talk more about that argument that you make? Sure. So in the U.S., um, we had a identity which was primarily grit, never give up, um, being physical and athletic, being underdogs. And then our style of play was counterattack, compressed space, and working groups defensively. And as the U.S. got better in talent, we started to believe that we could could compete with soccer powers on their own terms, or we needed to show somehow progress in that way against CONCACAF countries that we would rank higher than. And so all of a sudden people said, oh, let's adapt a more aggressive or proactive or possession-based style. Um, and Jurgen Klinsmann was sort of a result of that thinking, not a cause of it, a result of it. And what happened with that is, is that with um, we started to play one way against CONCACAF countries we could could um, were ranked higher than and could be proactive with. But then when we went to the World Cup and we played Belgium, we would go revert back to a counterattacking style, um, which the U.S. kind of termed ugly. That's one of the reasons why we call the book is um, one of the ugly truths is, is that we actually can win um, playing in that, uh, what many experts would say is an ugly defensive style. Um, so then what, what has happened is, is by playing, trying to be two things, um, the United States lost its identity um, in that process. And that's one of the things about the book that is unique or different is, is we interviewed people outside the United States. So when we interviewed a very famous coach in um, Spain, and I asked him, why do you play one way against Barcelona and Madrid? And why don't you then play a more proactive way against the lower ranked teams in La Liga? He explained to us, but if we do that, we're going to lose who we are, the essence of who we are, which is a gritty team that counterattacks. So I want to stick with one identity, one style of play. So what, what's the answer? <laughs> I, know, so the answer I know that's a, that's a very broad question, but we, yeah. we sit there and we look at it, and as Americans, we get very frustrated because we're seeing these developmental uh, teams. You know, we're lucky enough to be in Philadelphia and, and the union have a great developmental program. And you see these guys get good at very young age, like Brendan Aronson and McKenzie, and then they go abroad but they can still play for the U.S. men's national team. Can they come back here and play together and develop an identity, or do they, do they individually lose the identities and, and not mesh well when they go to these teams abroad? 
Yeah, so that's actually good. So Philadelphia Union are actually an important part of the solution um, because what, what should happen and what we guess will happen is, is that the majority of the U.S. men's national team will come from two to three or four academies, um, youth academies. So they'll come from Philadelphia Union, they'll come from FC Dallas, and probably one or two other academies. And then they will become familiar with each other in a style of play. They'll have trust with each other. And that's what's happened elsewhere around the world. The United States actually has struggled in part because, put this in perspective, in, in 1994, we had Mission Viejo, where the players um, you know, primarily trained together. There were some others that came from Europe, but they all worked together in, in Mission Viejo, kind of like the 1980 Olympic hockey team practicing together for a long period of time. Then the team by 2002, there still was a, a um, familiarity. They, our development academies were the University of Virginia, UCLA, and IMG Academy. The majority of the 2002 team came from those three places. But that has gone away. So by the time you get to Jurgen Klinsmann, you had the players, nine, they were in, the 23 players played in nine different leagues. And so we started to lose this familiarity of the players playing um, with each other. There was some remnants of it of the older generation on that team, but that has sort of gone away over time. Um, so now that's going to get reversed with these development academies. So they, they just need a little bit more time. To that end, above the academies, you look at how building a team on the international stage differs from critically from building a successful club team. Is that something that on a management level, U.S. soccer has been slow to embrace in terms of how they actually construct their team to develop that style and identity? Well, I think we get, we give the federation um, too much credit and too much blame. So the, you just mentioned the four last uh, World Cup winners. So they were uh, France, Germany, Spain, and Italy. All of them are in the top five leagues in Europe. And the majority of their players come from those domestic leagues. So 21 of the 23 players um, in Germany or 21 of the 23 players in Spain, they're from their domestic leagues when they won the World Cup. And so they have this inherent advantage. And so when people give credit to the Federation or give credit to the, the of Germany or Spain for winning the World Cup, they really should be thanking Bayern Munich and Barcelona's development academies. And I think that's, what those academies have done or what the federations have really done is encourage um, that development um, and, and encourage players going through that system. Um, so in Germany, for example, the Bundesliga and the federation give bonuses. So like the Philadelphia Union, if they have a really good academy, they would actually get bonuses from the federation to encourage that. And I think that's one of the things MLS and the Soccer Federation may need to think about is how do we make sure that these development academies are getting rewarded for developing players? Because that's really where the players come from. And then with regards to identity, this is one of the things is we just think that there's been a focus on having coaches that have a European influence or, or, or encouraging them to have a European style and get away from what we say is already an existing American style. So are we on the right track now? I think Greg Berthalter and, and Brian and Ernie, like they understand the culture of the U.S. Um, and the, what the team really means and what the identity is. Um, 
And I think what we'll see, it's a little early to tell, right? Because they haven't, with COVID and everything else, Greg hasn't really had a chance. But if you look at some of the more recent performances, it looks like Greg is, instead of having a counterattack play, what he may be doing is the more modern version of that counterattack play may actually be the high press um, working together um, sort of collectively in a, in a high press and utilizing the talent and athleticism some more. So we'll see what happens. So I think that that would be good. If you look at the talent development, um, we have actually fewer players playing in the top five leagues in Europe than we did in 2010. There's actually been a decline from 2010 through 2017, and then now it's been increasing. It's not where it was in 2010. People are actually shocked when we show them the data on that. But the players are 21 years old, where in 2010 they were 29 years old. So that just tells you there's a really big upswing that's coming with regards to these players and the development. So that is good. And then I do think that they really need to focus in on the identity. And the challenge of that is, is that you have all these players with many different backgrounds playing in many different leagues still and many different teams. And so how do you build a culture where these players know each other and trust each other? That's, if you ask me, that's actually Greg's biggest challenge. The book is What Happened to the USMNT, The Ugly Truth About the Beautiful Game. Stephen, where can people get the book? Um, it, it's available in uh, bookstores and as well as online like Amazon and, and places like that. We wish you the best of luck with it. We thank you for the t- time and look forward to talking to you more about the state of soccer as we go forward. Great. Thank you very much for having me on. Great program. You have a, have a great day. Jeff, that's staggering that we have fewer players in the top five leagues in 2010 than we do now. With all of the development that people are focusing on here that, I mean, we talk a lot about the youth movement because the union are the example. Well, you know, I I didn't think that to ask them this until you said goodbye, but even though they are, do you consider the MLS one of the top five leagues? No. Okay. So, so it could, that be why, because that the MLS is able to keep some of its talent back here. Maybe. So, so it may not be a negative is what I'm saying. I don't know. I don't know what the data, the data says, but it seems to me that we're, we're able to keep some of that talent, at least for shorter, short periods of time until they get so good that they then go to Europe. Well, you usually save your best questions for after we're done. So glad you got that. You want me to wait till after the show's over next time? Well, normally you do. You send me yeah. a text message. So can I, ask, can I ask you a baseball question? Sure. I was going to so, go to so, horse racing, but go to baseball. we got two no, minutes left. No, so, so we, we, we already know with the NBA how ridiculous the season has been because of the, of the way they scheduled it and players not playing. Are we now seeing the same thing happening in baseball? Because if, if you forget, if, if you're not a Phillies fan, if you're just a baseball fan, who's the one pitcher and the one hitter you want to see? Well, you want to Grom probably, Trout. right? Yeah, Mike Trout. And Mike Trout. Yeah. They're both, they're both out. out. Yeah, they're both out. And Mike it, Trout's out for six to eight weeks. Look, and, base, and, baseball's it, up five no-hitters now, and you have seen batting averages down. Like, I know they wanted to lower home runs, and I, I don't know if, if whatever has been done has gone too far, but it seems like the arms are ahead of the bats. Well, not the Phillies bullpen arms, but the other arms <laughs> are ahead of the bats. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you the one the one arm that that has been most impressive for the Phillies this year is Zach Wheeler. Oh, he has looked good. He, he re- How much do you think he, the Mets regret letting him go out of town? I don't know. Pitching isn't the Mets' problem, so I mean they might regret it because Jacob Degrom's now hurt. But they don't appreciate the pitching they have. 
Yeah. I, I, and the Mets are still in first place. So, wow. You, know, you, go, you go figure how, how that works. Look at all the other teams that are playing in the East. <laughs> Any final thoughts, Jeff? 15 seconds. I'm just hoping with the Phillies weekend series that they continue to have enough players to play on a daily basis. That will be a good thing. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.